verses 13 through 20. And I, uh, I debated a little bit about when to share this last message in our series, Choosing to Hope. And uh, this is the Sunday that, that I felt was appropriate. And so I want you to take a look at this passage. And we're going to dig deep today and talk about Abraham and talk about Melchizedek and talk about all sorts of things. Uh, we're going to throw in on Christ being anchor. So Hebrews chapter 6, begin verse 13. Are you ready? Let's go. There was no reason for swear before him, saying, I will bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by some greater than themselves. And the oath confirmed what is said and put an end to all argument. Because I want to be an engineer of his person very clear to bear his promise. He turned the oath. God did the oath that not to unimpose God for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind curtain, where Jesus, who before us, entered on behalf of his high priest, near of Let's pray again. Almighty God, we thank you for this day. We thank you again for this gathering place and all who are gathered here. And we pray, Father, that you would open our ears and our hearts to what you have to say through your word this morning. That you would illuminate your inspired word. That you would make it a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path that you'd help us to behold wonderful things from your law and hide your word in our heart that we may not sin against you. Do not let this book of the law depart from our mouths, but help us, Lord, to meditate upon it day and night, being careful to do everything that is written in it, that we may be prosperous and successful in your sight and the things that matter the most. We pray, Lord, that your word would be like a two-edged sword penetrating to soul and spirit, down to joints and marrow, very, showing us the very thoughts and the intentions of our heart and showing us who you are and who we are before you. And Lord, that you would teach and that you would rebuke and that you would correct and that you would train us in righteousness, Lord, thoroughly equipping us for every good work for your kingdom's sake in Jesus' name. And Father, we lift up our brother Carl to you again. Father, please... By your power and in your name, raise him up from his sickbed. Lord, we pray that you would restore him, that you would heal him completely in Jesus' name. And Father, we remember the many others on our list for health concerns and various other things. We commend them to your care. Lord, you know not only their names, but the hairs upon their head. We ask, Lord, for your will to be done in their lives and for the grace to walk alongside those who are struggling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we are today rounding the bend, talking about being anchored in an eternal hope. And so uh, I talked to you guys several weeks now in a row about this topic of hope from a biblical perspective, and we won't rehearse it much except to be sure that we know that when we as Christians speak of hope, it's not a tenth or God is who he says he is. We find out who he is from the scriptures, and we see time and again that he is faithful. It's a good place for an amen, not for me, but for him. Amen, there you go. I'm okay, you can talk back to me a little bit. The book of Hebrews is mysterious. I'd been saved probably about a year and a half the first time that I cracked open the book of Hebrews. And like many people, 
uh, when I started reading the Bible, I just figured, well, I'll just start with the most exciting stuff like Revelation. Well, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And then later, someone had mentioned something in Hebrews, and I thought, well, man, I'm going to go check that book out. And I read it before I had read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, so on, and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And, and man, it was, you know, like Popeye says, that Chinese is Greek to me. Uh, it was hard to understand the book of Hebrews without a knowledge of the Old Testament at that time. And so one thing I'll tell you is if you this afternoon go home and say, you know what, I'm going to dive into Hebrews if it's been a little while since you've read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you might want to go back and at least hit the, the descriptions in your study Bible of each of those books uh, because Hebrews is, is very firmly rooted uh, in, the, in the Mosaic Covenant and the sacrificial system and the temple and priests and all these sorts of things. But we can understand what we're talking about today uh, by looking at this passage sort of in isolation as long as we build a little bit of a foundation. And to do that, we're going to have to talk about the two individuals that this passage is sort of sandwiched by. The first of which was mentioned, what, is Abraham. And then the second is this guy, Melchizedek. Now, Abraham is more of a household name to us, right? But just like last week, Uzziah was sort of this guy that we don't really know a whole lot about, most of us, if we've grown up, you know, Southern Baptist or even Presbyterian or whatever. It's just not somebody you talk about a whole lot. But if you were a Jewish kid growing up, you would have known who King Uzziah was. Well, Melchizedek is kind of the same way. There's these, these different individuals throughout the Old Testament that were common currency if you grew up in a Jewish home. People like Phinehas, for instance. But we just aren't as familiar with them because we emphasize, rightly so, the New Testament so much in our teaching. But all of these people matter. And, and this whole book, I mean, you know, just every now and then I just want to remind myself of the significance of the Old Testament by rewinding my Bible to the book of Matthew and just showing myself how much of the Bible is the Old Testament. There's a lot here that matters, and all of it is God's Word. But let's just take a look here at these two people. And so the only way that I know to do this is to talk about Abraham, talk about Melchizedek, and then to go through the passage together. So let's start with Father Abraham, who had many... Good, I won't make you sing the song. <laughs> I deliberately did not let Kenny know I was talking about Abraham this Sunday. But uh, Abraham, his story is found in about 13 chapters of the book of Genesis, uh, which compromises, or comprises pardon me, uh, close to a fifth of the book of Genesis. Um, Genesis chapter 12 tells us about the call of Abram. That's not a misprint. Abram is renamed in Genesis chapter 17 is Abraham, and you'll hear me use Abraham often when I should say Abram, please forgive me. Uh, but the call of Abraham happens in Genesis chapter 12, right after the Tower of Babel and the Table of Nations. Abraham just sort of appears on the scene. Just, poof, there he is. And we know a little bit about him, uh, but God calls him to leave his home and says that he's going to make him a great nation. And then as Genesis chapter 17 he is renamed Abraham. The covenant of circumcision is established. The birth of his son Isaac is promised. And there's another restatement of the fact that he's going to be a great nation. And then in Genesis chapter 22, we have the situation where the son that is promised to Abraham, Isaac, God says, give him back to me. Take him to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. And then God in turn gives Isaac back to Abraham, and if you read the passage carefully, you get the impression that even though Abraham was willing to do what God had commanded, 
In his heart of hearts, he knew that he was going to receive his son somehow. Then there's the restatement of Abraham founding a great nation. So Abraham is not as mysterious by any means a figure as Melchizedek, uh, but the story that of, of Abraham, you'll notice, in all three of the major events is grounded in this promise that he will be the father of many nations. Now, some of this, of course, is fulfilled in the fact that you know, he has sons, and then there's the tribes of Israel and so forth that all uh, come from him. Abraham, of course, we all are essentially descendants of Adam, but take traces back through Noah to Adam and his genealogy directly. Uh, and it's a story undergirded by that promise. And also Abraham becomes an example throughout the, the scripture, especially the book of Romans, for instance, as an example of what? Faith and patience. Abraham is justified not by the things that he does, but by the faith that he has in God. So Abraham, in a nutshell. Now let's talk about Melchizedek. I don't know any other way to put this. Melchizedek's story is weird. It just, it just is. I'm not trying to be irreverent. Melchizedek is mysterious. Um, he's so mysterious that we have you know, roughly 4,000 years of people speculating about him, and they come up with some really, really interesting ideas about who Melchizedek is. Uh, let me just say something preliminarily here, okay? Um, Theologians don't like gaps, and they like to speculate and fill in those gaps, okay? I think it's a good principle as we study Scripture that where the Bible is silent, we should humbly remain silent. I, I just think we should... It's not wrong to say, well, I think it might mean this or that, but if we make any speculation, we should be really humble about it, and we should also be really careful that people that, that, that don't approach those speculations with humility, that we approach them with skepticism, okay? It's really easy to pick some sort of an obscure figure from the Old Testament or some sort of obscure passage from an ancient body of Jewish teaching to write a scary-sounding book title and make a lot of money, Okay? And we need to guard our hearts against false teaching because it abounds in the church today. And people who tell you they are certain about mysterious things because God told them so should be approached with the utmost caution, if not fleed from entirely. Now, that said, let's talk about Melchizedek and what the Bible tells us about him. The episode of Melchizedek is in Genesis 14. It involves a war between several kings, including the king of Sodom. Sodom is where Lot, Abraham's troublesome nephew, lives, and Lot, being Lot, manages to get captured and carried off as one of the spoils of war with a bunch of his stuff. Abraham hears this, he'll have no part in it, and he takes 318. I don't think this number is necessarily significant. It just happens to be the number that he has available. That's sort of his special forces. And he pursues this king and, their, and the other warriors. And they find Lot and the people and the stuff. And they rescue it and take it back. And as they're taking it back, Abraham returns and appears this guy, Melchizedek, in the story. I don't mean appears like in some sort of supernatural way, but Melchizedek is there greets him with bread and wine, and then blesses Abraham. Now, we can tell just by looking at the text um, a little bit about Melchizedek, but uh, in Hebrew, and uh, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us this, uh, king of Salem, 
means uh, king of peace, and Melchizedek's name also means king of righteousness. So Melech is king, Sadek is righteousness or holiness, and Salem is peace. You ever heard of a place called Jerusalem? Okay, you know, the city of peace, city of, and, and, and peace, shalom, is more than just like peace, man, okay? It's, I know like 40 years ago that would have got me fired, but I just did it. Um, and, but what I know is that, you know, hippies, right? You guys ever heard of them? Are you with me today? Okay, good. So king of peace, not that kind of peace, but shalom also means wholeness or being settled in our belief that God is taking care of things. Okay, that's another way to look at peace. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And so not only does Melchizedek come out and bless Abraham, but then Abraham gives Melchizedek an offering of a tenth of the spoils of war. There's another transaction that takes place where one of the kings says, well, give me all the people, and Abraham, you can take all the stuff. And Abraham says, not a chance. I'm not going to let anyone say that you're the one that set me up. I want all glory to go to God. And so you can keep all the money and the people. But I'm going to, I give this tithe to Melchizedek. And then we don't hear about Melchizedek again until Psalms 110. And then Jesus references him, uh, well, in a roundabout way. In Matthew 22, there's this argument about the Lord says to my Lord. And you can look at that later because we don't have time for that right now. It's not what we're talking about. So, again, just by quick way of review. There's a war. Lot is rescued by Abraham as Abraham, uh, Abram is coming back with the spoils of the people in this valley, Melchizedek meets him with bread and wine, blesses him, and then Abram in turn gives a, uh, a tithe to him because he is a priest of God Most High, which is unique um, for a lot of reasons, one of them being that he's a monotheist in a polytheistic culture. In English, what that means, he worships one God in a culture that worships lots and lots of other gods. And he's a priest of the one true Most High God. A guy named Mike Winger says, Old Testament question marks often become exclamation points when we read them through the lens of the New Testament. And so Hebrews chapter 5, 6, and 7 mention Melchizedek, especially chapter 7 goes into great detail. And what we find out from Hebrews is that Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Christ. Now, I think that's really important that I say that because... If you start just Googling Melchizedek, it gets really weird really fast. And, and some of the interpretations aren't just completely off the wall. They're just maybe not the most careful readings of the text. For instance, you may have heard someone tell you before that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a common understanding, especially in the ancient church. The only problem with that is Hebrews 7 is very clear uh, that Melchizedek did not live forever, okay? He, and, and Melchizedek has like a real life on earth, as it were. One day he, he's born, one day he dies, he sins. Jesus didn't do any of those things. And, and Melchizedek is not like Jesus uh, pre-incarnate and then Jesus is Melchizedek reincarnate or some sort of strange thing like that. Believe it or not, there's a lot of really strange... In fact, there is a, an extra biblical text uh, dedicated completely to Melchizedek there's writings about Melchizedek in the Qumran literature and the Dead Sea Scrolls and some other places like that. All I'm saying is if you get on YouTube this evening and, and type in Melchizedek, brace yourself. It just gets really strange. I would really discourage you, by the way, from getting most of your theology from Google, just as a general rule. Um, just saying. But anyway, um, 
Some of the connections between Melchizedek and Christ are like this. So Melchizedek is a king of peace, is a king of Salem. Christ is the king of kings. Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. Christ was a high priest, or is, excuse me, seriously, excuse me, is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, it tells us. Melchizedek, even though the Bible did not expressly tell us, offered sacrifice, there is no known priestly system in the Old Testament era that did not involve sacrifice of some kind. So we'll put a question mark there, but we're going to assume very strongly that Melchizedek offered a sacrifice at some point, seeing that even um, Cain and Abel were offering sacrifices before the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus, on the other hand, not offered sacrifice, but was a sacrifice was the once-for-all sacrifice, the Bible tells us. Melchizedek, imperfect, sinful human being. Christ is perfect and sinless. Melchizedek, of course, dies. I put an asterisk by that because that's probably the most important point in this entire thing. Because even though he's an eternal priest, he physically died. And then Jesus Christ lives forever. Which is why we're here this morning, by the way, right? Because of Easter. Because the cross wasn't the end of the story. Start preaching a whole other sermon. Okay, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Let that sink in for just a minute. So, first of all, there's a promise made. We've already established that, talked about that. But, but that, that sentence right there really arrested me as I was preparing for this message. Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. You remember being a kid, right? And what did you do when you were younger? We still spit on our hands and stuff when I was a kid. Did anybody ever do that before? Spit in your hand, spit, shake, you know? Yeah, there you go. I, I saw one of those. Yeah. Don't do that right now. There's a pandemic going around. <laughs> but, but I'm just saying, that, that's something we did when we were kids, right? Pinky swears, right? Well, you swear by my grandmother's bones, right? Swear by all that is holy. I swear by this, or forgive me, but you know, I swear to God. We hear people say, right? What's Jesus say about that? First of all, he says we should be people of our word so much that we don't have to amplify our oath by swearing to anything. Second of all, nothing belongs to us, so we can't swear on the temple because it's not ours. We can't swear on the gold in the temple because it's, it's only made sacred by the temple that belongs to God. We can't swear by our own head because it doesn't even belong to us, and we can't make one hair white or gray or anything else. He says, let our yes be yes and our no be no. It doesn't completely prohibit vows, like, for instance, the Nazarite vow, or Paul took a vow, different things like that. But here's what it does tell us, is that we can't swear to God because we have no authority over him. But when God says, I swear to, who's he going to say? Or I swear by. He swears by himself. Because he's the greatest there is. He doesn't even have to do it. But if he did, which he did, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. I'll surely bless you and give you many descendants. So that's the word that Abraham was hanging on to through his entire story in chapter 12 and chapter 17 and chapter 22 when he took his son Isaac to the, to the top of Mount Moriah. He's hanging on to that, 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 that promise that I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. After waiting patiently, after all those ordeals, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what it says and puts an end to all argument. 
says, but because God wanted to make clear the unchanging nature of his purpose, very clear, to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. So in other words, he did not amplify his promise because he had to. He did it for our benefit. He did it so that we would believe and we would know. And he did it, it says, by these two unchangeable things. Now, I have to admit, this is, of anything in this passage that I had to read and read and read and think and think and think through, it was this verse right here, because I thought, what does that even mean? Well, you go backwards. The two unchangeable things is what was promised, that he would be the father of many nations, and then the oath that he gave to reinforce the promise. It's really one thing, but it's, it's two separate things that, that relate to the one. Are you following me? So the, the first thing is that's unchangeable is the promise that, that God gives Abraham, or Abraham, and then later Abraham. And the second is the oath. Because God can't swear by anything higher than God, because there is nothing higher than God, and because what? God cannot lie. What does Jesus tell us about the devil, do you remember? He is the father of what? He's the father of lies. Bearing false witness is in the Ten Commandments, right? Do not lie. Amongst all of the things, sorcerers and, and the sexually immoral and murderers, liars are listed as those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Telling the truth, integrity, super important to God. Because God's people should be known as those who, because they follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, as those who tell the truth. Very important. So he cannot lie, and he promised it, and he gave an oath, and he showed his faithfulness in the life of Abraham. So for us, what all this means, so the life of Abraham tells us this. We who have fled take hope, excuse me, take hold and hope offered to us maybe Greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. First thing I want you to pay attention to is this, the statement that we took hold of the hope. Earlier on when I was here, we talked about what it meant to be a Christian. And to be a Christian is someone who has, by faith, taken refuge in the grace of God by faith in the Son of God and what He's done for us, right? That's what it means to be saved. We've taken refuge in Jesus. This is very much similar language. We who have fled take hold of the hope offered to us, and we may be greatly encouraged because we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. We'll get back to that in just a moment, but let's just, let's just talk about the anchor a moment. I learn something new every time I write a message. I, I just, I do. I've been preaching for over 20 years, and, and every time I open the Word, I, I hope that I learn something new or see something new about who God is, but I learned something new this week. And what I learned was, in some of the earliest days of the church, the anchor was as or more common an image of the Christian faith than the cross. That was a surprise. I think I'd actually heard that before once upon a time. I used to have this book called The Cross. 
that talked about the symbolism of the cross. It was written in 1936 uh, by a guy uh, named Gardner, I think was his name, or Garner. And you know it's a good book because I think I've bought it three different times now and then finally you know, loaned it out or given it out to somebody else to read and hasn't found its way home. Uh, but they talk about all the different symbols that are similar to the cross and all the different crosses throughout Christian history. And, and you know, like for instance, if you see an Orthodox cross, right? It has, it's here and then here, and then there's that weird looking bar that juts out to the side. Well, that's because there's the thief on Jesus's right hand and the thief on Jesus's left hand. And one thief goes to paradise and then one of them doesn't because they reject Jesus. So there's a symbol there. Or the Jerusalem cross that kind of looks like a plus sign. You know, that's the gospel going north, south, east, and west throughout the whole world. All the, none of these symbols are just haphazard, like graphic designs. Like somebody's like, man, this will be lit. We're just going to add an extra bar here and put some dots there, you know. All those have symbolism. They all mean something. But the anchor was a symbol of the early church. And, and it's not hard to see why. I mean, if you're, you know, looking at a cross... And then later you see an anchor, you could kind of see some similarity, especially if there's kind of the, the crossbar there. These are some ancient Roman anchors or illustrations of ancient Roman anchors. And so in times of persecution, especially uh, in the catacombs, archaeologists have found multiple, multiple examples of anchors used on Christian graves, used to mark places of Christian worship in the catacombs. And so when the cross was not convenient to be used for different reasons, they might use the fish, right? You've seen the, the Ixith fish, and there's some legends. You know, again, I want to say that because I've never really read anything really compelling about it, but I've heard what they would do is they might come up and, and with their foot make half of it, and then someone would look at them and go, what's that about? And you'd know that wasn't a believer. <laughs> and then if they were a believer, they might make the other half of the Ixith. Or maybe they would draw it somewhere so people would know it was a Christian home in times of less persecution. There's this interesting thing they've discovered. It looks kind of like a wagon wheel, which was an early Christian symbol. And apparently if you look into that, it's the different Greek letters kind of set in different directions. So the I is there and then the, the, the chi is there and stuff like that. I think that stuff's really cool. That's like Indiana Jones stuff, right? You know, it's like somebody puts that up on their house and then only the Christians know what that means. You know, Nobody else kind of knows what's going on. But it becomes a visual representation of the gospel, but especially because of what's written in Hebrews, the anchor becomes a familiar Christian symbol. And if you just Google cross and anchor, uh, Google images, there's some really cool uh, images out there of, you know, above ancient churches where the cross is laid one way and an anchor is laid the other way and the, the symbols are attached very closely together throughout early Christian history. And we know that we have an anchor that holds us fast within the veil. Now I'm going to come back to that anchor, but let's talk a little bit more about this because we've talked about Abraham, the promise of many nations. That's fulfilled in Jesus how? Well, how many of you are ethnically Jewish in this room right now? Anyone? Is there anyone here that, that knows for sure that they have? Okay, so we have, we have one or two people, okay. So out of a congregation here worshiping the God of the universe, two of us have an ethnically Jewish heritage. And the rest of us are here, and all of us ultimately are here, why? We're Abraham's children because of Jesus. That was the argument Jesus had with the Pharisees. He says, you're not even 50 years old. 
How can you say that you're better than Abraham? You can read it later. It's, it's amazing stuff. But we are fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham by faith in Christ. Beyond that, in the inner sanctuary, Jesus goes beyond the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Well, what's that about? Quick review of Matthew 27, verse 50 through 51. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, as he cried out in a loud voice and gave up his spirit, at that moment, what happened? The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. See, in Leviticus 19, uh, 16, rather than in Numbers 29, it talks about the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would go in after offering sacrifice. The people would fast and all these things would happen. And there's this extremely complicated set of, of rituals where two goats are chosen. There's a lot drawn. One is a sacrifice for him. The other is the scapegoat. Uh, he offers a, a, a sacrifice. He takes the blood in. There's a bull involved. There's all these, or excuse me, he offered the bull, I think, as a sacrifice for himself. See, I've, even after studying it, I, I lose track. It's hard to imagine how anyone ever thought they could be saved or if anyone ever thought they could be saved by following the law. Paul tells us the law was help, there to help us see that we needed grace. But the point is that Jesus fulfilled the law and when he died on the cross, the temple tore from top to bottom, opening itself up permanently. Does that make sense? And so anyone can come into the holy place by faith because of what he's done. And his sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice, Hebrews 7 tells us. Unlike the other high priests, that is Jesus, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for the sins once for all when he offered himself. And that's a definite reference to the Day of Atonement. And he's able to do this because Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he is a high priest forever, and because he is that, he is an eternal anchor. Say, well, that's perfectly clear. Listen carefully. God gave Abraham a promise. Abraham did everything he could, it seems like, to foul things up. But God again and again carried on his purposes and plan for Abraham until one day when Christ came, died and rose again and was offered up on a mountain just like his son Isaac had been offered on a mountain and was given back just as Christ rose from the dead. Those of us who believe in the gospel become children of Abraham. We become part of the Israel. Furthermore, we have an anchor now, think that's why the same thing People who come into contact with the holiness of God inappropriately in the Old Testament don't live to tell about it. Right before Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 15 is a story about Aaron's sons who die bringing an unauthorized offering to God. And it's partly because of that event that God lays down the law, literally, to, to say, this is what it looks like when you bring an offering to me. Jesus put an end to that by offering himself and setting an anchor in the Holy of Holies for our benefit. And what does that hope do for us? 
That hope anchors our salvation by securing eternally for us what we could not secure for ourselves. Second of all, it shelters us in the safe harbor of God's grace beyond the veil. And thirdly, it secures us no matter what storms batter us. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're participating in a promise that was given to Abraham. You're participating in work that was prefigured by this guy Melchizedek thousands of years ago that was fulfilled in the person of Christ once for all. And you have nothing to be afraid of in this life or the next because of where your hope is anchored. I think that God meant for this message to be shared today of all days because in the midst of everything that's going on, we are facing uncertain days in a number of ways. And what I'm going to tell you is you've got to be careful where you find refuge and you've got to be careful what you tether yourself to. And in the simplest of forms, I will tell you this morning, if you're not anchored to Jesus, now is as good a time as any. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace. And Lord, your, your, your word is full of mysteries. It's full of, of just absolutely astounding truths. And so, Father, we ask today that you would bring your word home to our hearts, Lord, that you would implant it in us and that it would grow and help us, Lord, to draw closer to you each day. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus fulfilled the law for us, that he died and rose again on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, for the examples of Melchizedek and Abraham and other faithful men and women of God throughout Scripture. And we ask, Lord, that we would be sure that we're anchored where we need to be. And Lord, if there's anybody in this sanctuary this morning that does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray today that they would find their way. Lord, that you would call them to the altar, that you would call them to a place of faith this morning. I pray for any believer here that's wavering or struggling, Lord, that they would remember that they're anchored on something stronger than their own will and their own failings, that they have grace that's greater than their sin. And Father, help us, Lord, no matter what storms come, personal illness, personal tragedy, difficulties in our community, in our church life, Father, disappointments, outright persecution, Lord, the church endures because we're anchored in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand that if God has spoken to your heart, you come.